In this episode, we went out there with Tim Landwer from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Tim grew up fly fishing as a young person in Wisconsin for smallmouth and trout. After college, Tim quit a job that left him unfulfilled and unhappy and moved to Montana, where he started instructing casting and guiding. Tim eventually moved back to Wisconsin with his wife and opened the fly shop Tightlines Fly Fishing Company. Over the years, the shop has shifted its focus from trout to smallmouth. Tim continues to guide and instruct and has published a book entitled Smallmouth, Modern Fly Fishing Methods, Tactics, and Techniques. We discuss common trends Tim sees in beginner casters, smallmouth tactics, letting go of your trout brain, and a special reason to skip school to go fishing. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. This is great. Yes, this is great. I am excited to talk about all the smallmouth fishing that you guys do up there. I, I have had quite a few people on the show that talked about kind of that area, um, and it usually centers around trout fishing and I know there's trout fishing in and around you, but you guys do a lot of, I mean, you do trout fishing as well, but I know you do smallmouth too. So that's something that I'm, I don't know as much about. So I I think it'd be cool to learn a lot more about it. Well, I'm I'm happy to share that with you. I mean, when we look at just fly fishing in general, like it's a trout centric sport. I mean, that's what pops into everybody's head. It's really a bizarre deal. Kind of like the starting of, of all of this. And what a huge part smallmouth has become, not just in my shop, but like in the country, in the fly fishing world. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about some of that stuff with you. Yeah. Smallmouth to me is always this in between fish because I agree. And I've said it on the show before fly fishing gets this kind of, um, you know, this preconceived idea of Rocky mountains, trout yeah. Uh, yeah. and in those types of rivers and things, but there's so much more to it. And, um, and, and smallmouth is something that I think is accessible to a lot more people than they than they might know. You don't have to take this big trip down to saltwater or get to the coasts or, you know, learn how to spay cast and things like that. But uh, no, it's a little no, more don't. Um, approachable, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah, and it's it's in so many people's backyard. Like here, I am in in my shop here in the Midwest. We've had our store for a long time, and there's so many people who come into the fly shop for the first time, a, more of a curiosity look, like, like, can you fly fish here? <laughs> because it, it, it goes back to your, yeah. your comment of, like, the Rockies, like, oh, no, only west of the Rockies can you fly fish. I know. You know, so, yeah, that's the perception that a lot of people who who get into the sport of fly fishing just have well, automatically. Well, let's continue to break those perceptions throughout this yeah. conversation, I guess. Perfect. <laughs> what, Perfect. What, um, well, I usually ask, you know, how did you get started in fly fishing and such? But I'm curious, you know, can you talk a little bit about how the shop transformed from, cause I think that would probably play into your story a little bit. I mean, you started fly fishing out there and originally the shop was kind of more for trout, right? And then it's kind of morphed into what it is today. Can you talk a little bit about that tra- yeah, transformation? I mean, I, 
Yeah, I, I, I've got the same story that most guys do in the fly fishing history or kind of like what, what, what you end up doing in, uh, in fly fishing, like as a trout junkie living in the back of my truck, fishing everywhere that you possibly could. Guided out west, Montana, Colorado. And in 2001, my wife and I moved back here and opened up our fly shop, Tightlines Fly Fishing Company. And, you know, when we opened it, um, we did it here primarily because, you know, there's, there's, there was only five fly shops in the entire state of Wisconsin, where when you look at Montana, I think our trade association, AFTA, had said Montana has like 1,236 fly shops. So, <laughs> it's I mean, like one like, fly shop for every 150 <clears throat> citizens. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's pretty good math. But yeah, when, when you're, you're in a, in a town of West Yellowstone and there's six fly shops in two blocks, you know, that's, that's different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, so we opened up the shop as, uh, you know, as, as just a fly shop selling a, a lot of trout stuff because that's still what we did. But as we kind of started, I, I grew up fishing smallmouth bass here as well. But as we kind of dropped drift boats in some of these rivers, we realized this untapped resource that we had. And I remember I had kind of a, kind of one of those aha moments when we opened the fly shop, you know, we were doing trout trips. That was it. Primarily hundred percent trout trips. And I would actually have to talk customers into it. Like, Hey, you want to go try catching some smallmouth out of a drift boat on one of these rivers? It was like more of a drug deal, you know, it was like, 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 yeah. cause you're afraid to say this is, we're going bass fishing. And now fast forward 23 years later, I'm still fishing with some of those people. But the aha moment was one of my best friends and I dropped the boat in on one of our rivers and we had this bang up day with smallmouth that fought harder than anything he's ever caught before. Yeah. They ate flies like a fish should. And I remember the end of the day, his name is Dave. He looked at me and said, he said, Tim, I would have paid a regular guide fee today. Like this was one of the best days of fishing I ever had. And that was that paradigm shift where I'm like, I need, I need to show more people this. And that was t almost 25 years ago. So yeah, that, that's how it started. That's, that's tricky, right? Because now you're in a kind of a, a unique situation because now, now you have something that is valuable, right? Your buddy Dave just told you, okay, this is a really valuable day. I mean, I loved this. This was awesome. So you know that mm -hmm. you have something special, but you've got to get it out to the masses that, like we said, right. still think that it's that it's, it's not that. And you've got a whole fly shop designed for not that, right? Or or mostly, Correct. mostly not that. Mostly not that. It, All fly shops were mostly not that. Right, right, yeah. right. So a couple of things on that I, I wanted to ask is, what was the move out west like? So I'm I'm guessing that Green Bay and that area is kind of your home town, or you grew up there. What what drove you out west, and uh, what brought you back? Um, hate, hate, hating my job more than anything on the planet is what drove me out west. Uh, okay, I worked in a bank, okay. and I came from a family where it was like, here's the deal: you get a good job, you hate it, and you work there every day until you die. And, you know, but you've got a good job and you can support your family. Okay. Let's talk more so, about this. Cause this, this type of yeah. stuff is fascinating to me. And I love, I love hearing these stories because it's inspiring. <laughs> I, it is, it's, it's real life. It's inspiring it is. to hear someone say like, I didn't like it and I'm doing, and, and hopefully the listeners to the show are, are people that are passionate anglers that, that want to right. go fishing when they can and stuff. So, yeah. So, but, but it basically boiled down to, I fished my tail off as a young man and uh, just couldn't get enough of it. 
ran a snowboard shop, you know, in some of the off seasons. And then I was just kind of guiding part time, but I worked in this bank. And I remember I was there for a number of years. And I walked into our banking manager's office and I told him, I said, like, I just can't do this anymore. And she's like, are you putting, uh, yeah, she's like, are you putting in your two weeks notice? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm leaving right now. <laughs> and I packed up a little Toyota four by four, five speed, four cylinder. And I drove to Big Sky, Montana the day that I quit. From the bank. Uh, Did you make a stop for like a peanut butter sandwich oh, or anything? No, I had to go pack. Okay, you know, okay. I, I didn't, I didn't really have this all planned. Like it kind of all just went down like kind of that day. Yeah. And, um, no real plans. And, um, that was it. I was just going to go out there and fish and sling beers at a place or wash dishes or what I, whatever I could do. And, um, my parents were very disappointed. I've I've come from a very close knit family. My, I talked to my mom and dad every day. Heartland, baby. Heartland. Yeah. I lived out in Missouri and I love the Midwest. You know, yeah, it's it's Midwest. Nice family. And I mean, it's what it is. It is great. and uh, I just remember how disappointed they were. And my parents had never – I come from a family of just regular blue-collar family, you know, never asked for money or anything. And I remember my mom gave me a $100 bill, and she said, you have to get a hotel room because I know you're going to just drive straight through because <laughs> that's that's what moms do. Right, right. And, um, you know, disappointed in my choice. But I ended up in Big Sky, Montana at the 320 Ranch, and I was going to just make sandwiches for their guides and – going to bartend and do whatever I had. And I was out on the casting pond. There was a gentleman, his name was J.D. Bingman from Wild Trout Outfitters. And J.D. said, hey, do you want to teach casting lessons? Because it's a full working ranch. You know, they have horseback trips, but they have guide services. How'd you get hooked up with this ranch? Did you just kind of... Well, I was I was just going out there, just randomly making phone calls and stuff, and they're just they're all looking for seasonal help. You're trying to get, so, I got you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. I'm, I'm just trying to pack something together yeah. to like try and make some money for gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're like, you can live in the bunkhouse, and we called it the Funk House because there was like 26 people who lived in the bunkhouse, yeah, yeah. Ra- wranglers, rafting guides, all of the above, and. uh Lived there, taught casting lessons. I got to live for free. I washed dishes. I made sandwiches. And uh, I didn't have any money. And JD said, hey, would you like to guide for us? So he let me tie flies at night in his shop. And he paid for my guide's license and first aid and CPR. And I started guiding there, you know, for him. So they were going to kick me off the ranch because now I'm not really working for the ranch. But I was living there for free. And uh, I met this beautiful young lady who worked at the front desk, and we were all broke as a joke. You know, I mean, this is if you were a fly guide or a rafting guide, you at least had maybe beer money or something because of tips. But um, that's kind of where it stood. So she and I made an arrangement where every trip that she would book, she would book me, but I had to buy dinner. You know, like if we were all out, because we'd all go out in groups. This wasn't a romantic relationship. This was just like a business deal. Arrangement. Correct. It was an arrangement. All right. She didn't know. Go on. Go on. Right. Okay. Well, okay. Fast forward. We've been married for 25 (laughs) years. That's what I wanted to hear. Okay. So there's where it is. So that's kind of how it all started, man. And then like I came back here in the off seasons and ran a snowboard shop and guided here and guided out west and then ran the snowboard shop. And in 2001, she moved, Sarah, my wife Sarah moved here, and we opened up the fly shop. So that was it. What was challenging about 
the casting lessons early on. I mean, that seems like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like the typical entry position for fly fishing. Like you did that before guiding. Do you remember anything yeah. that you learned from that experience that you've carried on today? Well, I, I, I've learned a lot of patience and understanding and, and casting is one of those things like there's a lot of people who are really, really good fly casters and I still guide full time through the shop. And one thing you'll always find out about like fly casting is just because you're a great fly caster means nothing about how good of a fly casting teacher you are. So it really taught me a lot. It, it was it was a great first experience for me doing that versus guiding straight away because yeah. I could carry that casting lesson into guiding which was an invaluable lesson, you know, to be able to take that to the river and help people on site. Um, but it allowed me to deal with, you know, I might have five or six 45 minute casting lessons a day. So you've got this huge variety of people, all with different skill sets, most with no skill sets, but different bad habits. And it, I learned a lot of identifying uh, casting problems and things, which has served me really well in my profession still today. So patience and yeah. were there patterns you recognize? I mean, I would imagine over time you're kind of, you're, you're, you can see them before they even start casting, you know, like th th there's like a handful of things that you kind of notice. Is that true or is it a surprise Absolutely. every time? No, it's not a surprise every time, you know, there's maybe three or four, casting problems that are the most identifiable or that like almost everybody has or has like a little piece of let's run through and then the okay the first one is like breaking their wrist understanding that you know the rod travels in a plane it's not necessarily the river runs through at 10 o'clock and two o'clock but the fact is the rod has to stop on certain designated planes from an acceleration to a stop okay. as soon as somebody opens their wrist up gigantic loop no line speed <clears throat> That's the first one. The next one is people who have a lot of fishing experience, no fly fishing experience, all acceleration just on the front end. They don't understand that the back cast and the front cast is a mirror of one another. Yeah. Might be a guy who fishes walleye. You go back soft and you push forward real hard. So those are a couple of the things that you see. The other thing that you see is, you know, guys just trying too hard, you know, uh, trying to strangle the cork or yeah. you know j just working too hard it's real tight and yep real tight and the last one is understanding how to shoot line and understand the appropriate time to release line on an, on a stop so there's a handful of really really critical things that are the essence of our sport and then you've got all the nuances where it's like this is how we're going to bring you to a hundred foot cast you know right like, yeah those that's are, those are that's advanced more level stuff but I think yeah. it's interesting how in many skill sets, you know, when you're instructing, there's these things that become identifiable and trend items is what we used to call them, like a trend item. Yep. Like, yep. Uh, and I think it's it's so much fun because there's a lot of times you, they think that you're just brilliant because you're going to tell them <laughs> what they're going to do wrong yeah. before they even do it. They're like, how did you know? And it's uh, like, no, it's because everybody does that. We used to, yeah. We used to joke around about that when I was uh, flying in the Air Force and teaching and be like, this is what you're going to mess up and, yeah. and then you're going to try this and that's not going to work. And then we're going to come back and talk about it. And you're probably going to do this one again tomorrow. But, <laughs> and you're still going to do the same thing tomorrow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, the other thing, the second thing I want to bring up is yeah. how much of the transition 
was with Dave and that kind of realization and then how much of it was you and your passion because, you know, I going back to this idea that you've got this kind of golden nugget kind of thing that you're like, I've got this idea and I want it to spread, but mm-hmm. now you have to have the, the passion to push it forward. So how much of that is driven by like making the shop successful and how much of that is being driven by you just wanting to fish for smallmouth cause you enjoy it more or if, I don't know if that's true or not, you know, do you get what I'm saying? I, I do I do get what you're saying. I think that there's a lot of bits and pieces to that. The the first part was I was I mean it's a fly shop in Wisconsin. It's a very and even today after 23 years you have to really love it because this is not a proposition that you're going to get wealthy at. It's just what it is. I just love it that much still. So at that point when that smallmouth kind of like the poof minute yeah. with Dave um Part of it was like the greed part of me was like, like well, I could, I have some potential to grow and do something. But then there's the other angel on a shoulder and then there's the devil on the other shoulder going like, don't wreck it. Okay. Don't wreck it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't so we, mean like greed. No, no. I just meant like no, no. you've got something, no, you know, that's I, important. I know, I know what you, I, I totally know what you mean, but yeah, yeah. that was my feeling was, was like, God, am I selling myself out, okay. you know, by ex- exploding. But what I had found out, and here's here's the magic of it, Jason, and here's still the magic today. I'm going to say this. It's not going to sound good, but I'm going to say this. It's just a bass. And I only mean that because in saying it like that and taking away from a bass is they've gotten such little recognition up to that point 20-some years ago, whether it was a largemouth or a smallmouth bass in the fly fishing community, if it wasn't a trout – it might as well have been nothing, yes, you know, Pe- people's visions at that point were glitter bass boats on big lakes with hats on backwards at a big tournament, holding bass up above fireworks. <laughs> yeah. And that's fireworks. not what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, smoke and, you know, yeah. like all, all this, right. you know, million dollar prizes. And that's not what this is. These are native fish like our smallmouth here in wisconsin in the midwest are as native as our brook trout are never been stocked in a bunch of these rivers um their algonquin word term form is ash again or the one who struggles like it it through deforestation and everything else these fish are not just wild they are native they fight like crazy they eat on top and more importantly we're not talking metal flake bass boats we're talking drift boats rafts beautiful northern wisconsin rivers with very little homes and i mean it's 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 perfection and i think back at what we had to do to bring that to the forefront and not to be boastful but we were one of the first shops in all of the upper midwest to ever bring drift boats to these rivers for smallmouth bass this was a long time ago this wasn't 10 years ago this is this is a long time. This is a long time ago. And nowadays we run six or seven full-time guides seven days a week. And um, it's the biggest part of our business because it's so awesome. Yeah. That was my next kind of question is, can you talk a little bit about the waters themselves and the river ways? Because typically when I think of the driftless and 
I don't know if you're, if we're, are we talking about the same thing, the driftless region or are you in a different No, area? no. The, the driftless region is like, if we look at like the state of Wisconsin yeah. and where we are in Green Bay, we're real close to the Bay of Green Bay, Lake Michigan. The driftless area would be southwest of us. I have a cabin down there, Viroqua area, southwest part of the state. And down there, the glaciers hadn't gone through very cold rivers, small streams, some of the best trout fishing in all of the Midwest. But that is primarily a trout fishery. There's some smallmouth fishing down there too, but primarily a trout fishery. Okay. Where we are, when we talk about the rivers, to kind of get to the point that you're, I think that you're trying to have me address is these are bigger rivers, freestone rivers, and how these rivers differ from somewhere else say the Driftless section or say like the Madison River or the Gallatin is they're big freestone rivers like that. But these rivers are far too warm in the summer months to have populations of trout. You know, these rivers will be 70, 80 degrees, but they don't have native populations of trout, but they do hold these native populations of smallmouth bass. They're more medium to larger size rivers. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because originally mm-hmm. I'm thinking Wisconsin and all these driftless streams that are these small yeah. kind of like nuanced, very narrow. I'm like, well, how do we run drift boats down there? But uh, <laughs> I guess you, you get a whole bunch of mad dudes at yeah. you like coming through. Jim, pardon me. Yeah. That's all right. I could have looked at a map and figured that one out probably before okay. we started talking. That's okay. But, there are some driftless smallmouth streams though. I will tell you that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But, um, okay. And, uh, so warm waters and is, is a drift boat the best way to fish them? Or do you ever fish from the bank or is there a lot of stopping and getting out or how do you fish them with and without a drift boat? I mean, there are, there are a lot of wading opportunities. If you want to wade for smallmouth bass, I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of that opportunity, but on a float trip with tight lines, it's almost all out of a drift boat, a raft or a jet boat, depending on what watershed that we're fishing. And there's almost no getting out in fishing. And the reason for it is, is um, we're covering so much water and it's just the much more effective way to fish. You know, it would be like uh, for your listeners, like trying to just streamer fish seven miles on foot or something. I mean, it, it's not a real practical way of going about it. You know, we can cover a tremendous amount of water by the boat. So yeah, it's just a better way of doing it. A lot of times when I'm fly fishing from a drift boat for trout, I'll come to a place and there'll be sections where I want to fish. I want to see it again, you know, or I I just, this looks like it holds more fish. Maybe I catch a fish and my brother catches a fish or it looks good. Is there parts of a river that are tempting like that where you might say, let's, let's stay here for a little while. You just kind of hang in the drift boat, but just hit, hit it over and over. Or do the fish kind of tell you, you, you only get kind of one shot at it and move on. That's a really good question because smallmouth are different than trout that way. Um, there are some of those spots though, Jason, where I'm like, man, okay, we, we should, we should fish this with a few different techniques rather than just continually covering water with top water or whatever that we're fishing. But trout are different from a standpoint of, you know, trout will hold in a higher population density than smallmouth. Like in, in our rivers, smallmouth densities are a lot lower than what they are on some of the big trout streams. And on those trout streams, if you look at like the Bighorn, for instance, or something, below every one of those riffles where it's just good holding water, there might be a hundred reasonable to large trout that hang below there just waiting for food to come down to them. Right. So you could stay there all day and continually nymph that 
effectively or ineffectively, you know, <laughs> catch a couple, new fish come in. Yeah. Smallmouth are different. Smallmouth don't hold in that same fashion where food is just, they're sitting behind a rock and food is coming down to them. The rivers don't have near the gradient that they do out west that we're fishing. But a smallmouth hunts. A smallmouth is out and about looking for prey. So we're not fishing them in the same type of way. So that's that's kind of that big difference between getting out and just nymphing that run over and over again. If you don't get a fish out of one or two of these spots, either they're just not going to eat, period, or they're just not there. Do you sight fish for them? Is there, is there a lot of sight fishing? There is, and there's there's two ways to look at like smallmouth bass and sight fishing. The first way is not my favorite, or do I think it's a really ethical way of doing it? <laughs> okay. But like when, when they when they spawn, you know they build nests, and you know you can physically see these nests, and people will put flies on their nests, and and, and they'll physically come over, pick up the fly to move it off of the nest. What does a nest look like? Um, a smallmouth nest, because it's not in fast moving water, like a, what a red would look like right. for a trout or yeah, a yeah. salmonid of any nature like that, kind of looks like a, like a white tire, you know? I mean, it's like a, it's just kind of a cleared out area where they fanned off the rocks and it's like a lighter colored spot. Okay. So that's what it looks like. But I've had guys come into a shop and say like, yeah, I caught that one five times in a row, you know? Well, yeah, he's... <laughs> just picking up your so so there's that type of sight fishing uh for smallmouth bass uh which we we stopped guiding during the spawn for a couple weeks because we just would rather let them do their their program but our rivers are clear they're red from some of the tannins but we have a tremendous amount of shallow water where we will physically see smallmouth bass from three to even up to five or six pounds cruising that we can physically sight fish cool. with smaller flies, yeah. finesse stuff, and uh, I mean, almost Henry's fork-like rather than just blind fishing them. So there's some of those unique opportunities that we've learned over thousands of trips down the river that's available to us. Yeah, that's really cool. And I'm sure there's probably sections where there's more of that opportunity available than others. You guys kind of figure that out through experience. Most, most certainly like there's some water where it's like, we're just going to fish. We're going to be effective, but we're going to fish blind. And then there's some stuff where it's like, we have good light. We don't have a lot of wind. I can stand on my seat. We can go and headhunt some of these other bigger fish and finesse fish some of those up. What are some of the things that if somebody comes out to fish for smallmouth up there, that there's kind of surprising or unique or that you find especially, uh, or that you find uniquely special about your fishery? I think the most unique thing is people who travel to fish for trout come up here and they catch like one of their first river smallmouth, like a born and bred river smallmouth on a fly. And they are just absolutely astounded by their strength and their overall power. Um, smallmouth in rivers typically don't run. We classify them more as that street fighter. It's down and dirty. It's a close fight. You don't put them on the reel ever, but like they're going to kick your butt. It's going to be close, but I mean, they're going to, they're going to just get after it. So most of these guys hook one of these fish and let's say it's like a 14 or a 15 inch fish. 
Well, that 14 or 15 inch fish has fought harder than any two foot trout that they've ever caught. Okay. So, and then we have them instantly. They're like, okay, this is the best thing I've ever done. (laughs) So this is it. This is it. Well, like your friend Dave said, you know, uh, it's something special for sure. Uh, Otherwise it wouldn't be catching on or be as popular or or just as as interesting. and it has gotten popular. It's 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 really um, it's really been fun to kind of be in the inside of this and watching this progression. Um, when I was on Tom Rosenbauer's podcast, he was talking about it, and he said that smallmouth bass are now the number two game fish pursued on a flat rod, number two behind trout, which of is all game fish on a flat rod. Yes, number two. Wow, Number I would two, have guessed which, some sort of saltwater thing. I would have, I would have guessed bonefish yeah, or right. redfish or something like that. Yeah. But number two, because of like how available they are to a lot of the warmer water regions. And now That's cool. I'm seeing all of these other shops in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio and all of these other shops that have really good smallmouth programs, guides, outfitters, fly design, innovation, like it's a real thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a real, real thing. Well, good. That's awesome, Tim. I'm excited uh, for you guys out there and kind of being at the forefront of that. That's an exciting place to be. Why not put them on the real? What's, uh, I I was going to get to fighting the fish last, but let's go backwards. Let's go from fighting the fish forward to maybe we can talk about presentation and reading water, but let's, Mm -hmm. let's stick with fighting fish because, Everybody says that they're such a hard fighting fish. So mm-hmm. first, yeah. why not put them on the reel? And second, you know, what would you expect from a, a, a small mouth when they're fighting? Like a hard fighting fish is pulling really hard or what, what do you just flop well, around? <laughs> they pull hard. They jump. You know, as the summer, as water warms up, you see them far more acrobatic. So you might get two or three big jumps out of a, <clears throat> out of a small mouth. But what ends up happening when people put them on the reel, because we're just taught that with the trout. But if you think of any game fish, period, that you fish for, typically the fish dictates and lets you know if I should put him on the reel. You know, like let's say you catch a, a big fish out of a drift boat and he's running downstream and he's taking line. He's helping you assist putting it on the reel. You know, the fish is taking an active role in helping that happen. With smallmouth, because they they fight close and um they're that street fighter that i said where they just dig deep and just power you when people try to set the hook on that fish and then go to the reel the fish isn't running it's just powering you it's almost impossible to keep good tension on that fish while trying to pick up that slack i watch it happen all the time while they're in the middle of it like no i I'd feel better putting it on the reel and they lose the fish. It's inevitable because you watch the rod tip go from a steep bend to straight, 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 and the fish is gone. So we tell everybody just strip as hard as you can till you feel like you're going to break him off and keep that rod bent. Never point at the fish and create a straight line to the fish. Keep that rod bent and pull on that fish and uh, he's going to give you a ride. But uh, there's no reason to put him on the reel. That's very interesting. Uh, and I wonder, um, because they're not making runs, you said, right? So they're not right. really yeah. helping you do that. So uh, you don't no. get that assist. So now you've got this opportunity for them to 
for a mistake to be made, I guess, is what you're saying. That's exactly right. Yeah. If they're fighting within that proximity and you have good tension on it and you're concentrating on locking that index finger down to the cork and then trying to put that line on, you're not making any gain on him. You know, there's too many errors that can happen in there. So it's hard to convince people with it. But once you do it once or twice, you see, you're like, I get it. I yeah, see. yeah, yeah. Um, for the hook sets, do you feel like they take flies harder or differently than what people would expect from trout fishing? I mean, a lot of my frustration in, in learning and trout fly fishing comes from losing fish that probably go back to my hook set. Right. Or sure. just, you know, if I lose a fish, I'm, I'm generally, that's one of the, if I have a fish and I, it's good, I either, he comes off right away. Like uh, I didn't get a mm-hmm. good hit, uh, hook set yep. or comes off later. Maybe I w- was fighting him too long and, or something like that. But that hook set is so important and I focus on that a lot. How do you think about hook setting in, um, smallmouth world yeah hook setting is it is true you, you you made a great point there jason how where it's like when did this go wrong did it happen in the front end of this <laughs> yes. the middle of it you gotta <laughs> yeah. think about it but, on the drive home like <clears throat> ah right like maybe i should have leaned on him a little bit more sure. but you also have to think about like i because i've been doing this so long like the rationale behind it is like let's 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 look at it this way you're throwing like lint and feathers and a little tiny metal hook out into the ethos, out into the abyss here to try to catch one of these fish. The fact that number one, they eat it and it gets stuck anywhere in their mouth still is a miracle to me, like that that all works. That is cool. And yes. then you and and then you think about just the the margin of error there of maybe it just got a little bit of the flesh on the inside. You know, maybe it's it's not in the jawbone at all. Like it just pulled up. So I always tell guys whenever they lose a fish, like, man, that could have been one of 5,000 things and some of it might not have been you at all. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, there's a lot of variables. So, that's yeah, there are. Okay. So, so never, be, never beat, you up. beat yourself up. Um, but as far as the hook set goes and how smallmouth eat a fly, it's very different how a smallmouth eats a fly from top water. You know, there's this rabbit hole goes deep. So I, I, I want to I want to try to keep this as as neat and tidy as I can. Well, I appreciate but that, but we can go deep. We can go deep. Okay. As well, well, well as you want into the tactics, this, but this, this this is it's its own podcast. <laughs> okay, um, okay. But um, you know, if you have like diver style flies, frog style flies, big hair bugs, they have a tendency of eating those more aggressively. If you have more. We call them wiggly style flies. It's become a new category that we've kind of created. The shop has kind of created. Like it's a thing now across the country. They're just called wigglies. It's a variation of a top water fly. They sip those delicately. Um, if you have a streamer pattern, a lot of times they'll come through a streamer pattern really hot and aggressively eat that. So sometimes depending on the the style of fly that you're fishing, the method that you're fishing, the um, – the hook set changes a little bit. Okay. Top water, maybe you have to wait a little bit. But um, it's still just, you know, give them the berries, hit that fish hard, and then immediately go to the strip. That's where people fail in the smallmouth game. They will set the hook and they'll wait for the fish to react. And in that time, the fish might have made a couple big pulls or something like that and you never got the hook in them so we always tell people like once you hit that fish you go immediately to like long strips 
to try to button that fish up as tight as you can. You know what I mean? Like, like get, get him pinned up hard and, 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 and there's two different strips that people do. And I talk about this in a bunch of my slide programs. They'll make these little tiny six inch strips, but they'll make like 20 of them. Like <laughs> I got an idea. Just make like three big long belt line strips, you know, and, and hit and, and pick that slack up on the fish. Once the fish makes it across the front of the boat and is just kind of powering on you, like now you've got things under control and now you can fight that fish. But until you have that done, like you stick that fish and you strip hard. Yeah. It seems like I'm imagining this happening just faster and more aggressively than I typically do with trout. Um, Mm -hmm. It seems like with a trout, I'm more apt to set the hook and then assess a little bit, like take that yeah. kind of like, okay, what's, is he going to run at me? Do I have to strip or is he going to run away? Now I'm going to let him go a little bit because if you hold on, then you might break off if he, you know, if you, or he gets out to some debris or a log or something you don't want him to get to or, or such. But it sounds like I'm hearing you say this is more like you have to be more aggressive or at least more than yeah. what I described. I'm not describing you know, the purpose way to, to, to no, you've actually, fight a trout, but that's you know what, what though, I Jason? think about, you know. You've described something that I'm going to use in my guide season, like from years to come. I just learned something from you because it is, it's probably something that customers are thinking that I'm not thinking. And you're right. Because even guiding out west, like when you stuck that fish, let's say even if you're waiting or you're in a boat or whatever you're doing, you, you hit that fish, I know exactly what you're talking about. There might be a microsecond or two of trying to figure out in your head yeah. what's this fish's play Is it a big fish, before I make my play. Fish? What's yes. it doing? Is it going into fast water? Like, yep. Because if I make yep. a mistake early on, you know, I, I, I just need to assess what it's going to do before I decide how I need to fight the fish. That's Right, could before you have quickly. the terrible <laughs> drive home thinking about right. what you did wrong the entire time. Okay, uh, but, but it's no, different. but that makes it's different. That, it, it is different yeah. from a standpoint of like here we're in a more open river without you know maybe obstructions he has to go under. Well, then you got to use common sense. Like if he's going to go under that log, you got to pull on him. You right, know, you right. got to you got to get on him. Um, but in most cases, the standard protocols hit that fish pick up as much slack as you can to get that fish tight so you don't give them any margin of air because the hooks are bigger. The diameter of the hooks are a little heavier. We're not fishing little trout flies. Right. Um, because we're, you know, we're really focused on protecting these fish. We're fishing barbless. So there's a lot of errors that can happen, especially if you don't have a tight line on that fish the entire entire sequence okay. from, from, from bite to boat. Sounds good. Let's get into a little bit of where we, we talked a little bit about it, but what are some of the things you look for, for, uh, when presenting flies, like, well, let's just talk re- reading water first. What are you, what's good smallmouth water? If you're not sight fishing, or even if you are sight fishing, where, what does it make, what makes it, um, a place where smallmouth are going to want to be and where you're going to want to fish? Sure. It, trout fishing is, is kind of that, that's the hardest part when people start fishing smallmouth <clears throat> because that trout brain pops into our head and these are not trout and you don't fish them like trout. So the whole thing that you and I have been taught of riffle run pool, you know, strategy on that um, is not necessarily the game in smallmouth. 
you know, we have to look at that smallmouth bass and the water that we're going to fish from a different standpoint, meaning um, they're up there hunting. The ones that we're physically fishing, like we're looking for actively feeding fish. So I like the rivers that I guide on, there's a lot of rock, mostly stone rock. I'm looking for water that is knee to thigh deep flats that have a myriad of different sized rocks with a lot of crayfish habitat in. And a lot of times those fish will be up in that, in that area looking for fish or for looking for crayfish, looking for minnows. So I'm fishing a lot of that water. Now there's also times where, you know, you'll go down the river and this is the, this is the part of smallmouth fishing that people do, whether it's smallmouth or largemouth, whether it's rivers or lakes. The general rule for people was just bang the banks, you know, cast to the banks, tight to the banks. The smallmouth are right up on the banks. The largemouth are right up on the banks. Well, that works when the water is up and the fish are active and are really aggressive. Like it's a great strategy. But once we get into the summer months and the water starts dropping out, you know, I've seen guys that are fishing all day and they're they're casting to three inches of water all afternoon because they're staying with the same protocol of cast to the bank. Gotcha. Well, th- there's not fish there. <laughs> In our smallmouth book, we talk about what we classify as the second drop. And that has changed a lot of people's lives on fishing smallmouth with a fly. And what the second drop is basically, if you look at any of those bigger rivers, you're going to have the main river channel. And the second drop is it comes out a little bit but it's it's where the river starts to break into the deeper water, like like one of the other river channels. Exactly. So during that time, when they're not in that shallow water in that area, we will patrol that second drop in fish bait, fish patterns, and stuff like that. And that's where we're going to find those fish. So those are just some of the types of areas that we'll be fishing. Why not? I mean, I understand the concept of the water being shallow, but is yeah, is there an in between or? Why not fish to the bank and and then strip it out towards that second drop? Or is that, I mean, is it kind of a waste of time? Like, yeah, we might as well just fish the second drop here. It is a waste of time because a lot of times in order for you to cast to that bank, your boat might be on the second drop. You know, I mean, like you're you're physically there, like the distance is too great. Or you're now casting over those fish and lining those fish in clearer water. Um, and you're not effectively fishing that second drop at that point. Do you guys ever use electronics? Anything like, uh, no? we don't, I okay. should, I bet you it's <laughs> I, great. I, I don't know. If you should. <laughs> I was just curious. I, I was, uh, uh sure I, shortened the, I sure know where they were. Um, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, I was thinking of, I, I got my, you said trout brain. I had my bass yeah. brain, yeah, yeah. fireworks and the bat. I did yeah. some yeah, uh, yeah. bass fishing when I was in Missouri and, sure. uh, there was always a, a fish finder or a bass thing or something. Oh know. yeah. Yeah. Some of, some of the stuff that's out there is insane. Yeah. Um, that's fair. I just thought I'd ask what, yeah. uh, all right. So fish in the second shelf and yeah. what are some things that you think of when presenting flies? Is it about how you strip or what, you know, how would you present these different type of flies? You mentioned a couple of them, the wigglies and mm-hmm. the ones they take, softer and harder how do you present these flies differently then okay that's a good question because if we look at like fly category for bass we'll break it down real easy you're gonna have like your subsurface or your dredging patterns which is your deep sinking stuff that might include clouser minnows 
Whitlock's near enough crayfish jiggy patterns, heavy stuff that you're going to be fishing the bottom. Then you're going to have the next style of pattern, which we were going to classify as more of an intermediate level pattern. And that intermediate level pattern might be a bait fish that is suspending, you know, like a Murdich minnow, Mm -hmm. uh, Blaine's game changers, um, stuff like that. Then you're going to have divers or poppers, which directly sit on the top. Fish feels it in their inner ear, lateral line, come up and eat it. And then we have the wigglies, which are that finesse top water. So those are kind of like the categories to try to summarize that that, uh, for your listeners. The one thing that every one of these fly patterns are going to have um, in common is kind of the angle at which you fish. If you're fishing from a watercraft, raft boat, or anything else – I almost always, always want people to be fishing downstream, 45 degrees downstream, instead of directly across from the boat. We always call it fishing in the future, not fishing in the past. And that's where a lot of people have a real problem. They keep looking and and start fishing back behind the boat. So that 45 degree angle, let them see the fly before they see the boat or before they see you walking and you're approaching. Um, Those streamer patterns... Those suspended patterns is kind of a a strip jerk kind of a thing. Move it, let it fade, and let it die, kind of waffle, that type of deal. Um, That's how you fish that type of stuff, mixing it up. Think like a bait fish kind of a thing. The topwater flies are an interesting deal because, like, if if, if personally, I bet you I fish 95% of topwater for smallmouth in the summer. And we catch giants on top water. I'm, I'm not doing my customers any in, like disservice by doing this. Um, it just works, and we catch a lot of big fish. But top water is one of those things. Like like a popper, you know, you 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 pop it, make a strip. You hear that, you know, gabluk, and the fish comes up, and sometimes they destroy it. Sometimes they just come up and sip it all gently, and that's where. We identified this other style of fishing, like finesse fishing. That's where the Wigglies came in. There's a pattern called the Charlie's Old Mr. Wiggly, which is basically kind of a bastardized Chernobyl ant variation. But that particular fly is rubber legs and foam. And the smallmouth that are more passively feeding, that aren't real aggressive, this is is where that rabbit hole and where this deep thing keeps going, (laughs) where... We'll have smallmouth that are in water that's knee deep, but they will not chase down a bait fish. They will not destroy a popper, but they would take a snack off the surface, if that makes sense. You know, if it's so easy. So this old Mr. Wiggly, you're just casting it out and you're just basically just wiggling it a little bit just to bend the rubber legs on it. And I've seen smallmouth over five pounds elevate up like a cutthroat tip up on it and sip them in with the most confidence you've ever seen, but they won't take the aggressive stuff. So there's, there's details to each of these portions that we do. And that's what we describe in that small mouth book is kind of understanding the levels of the water column and then understanding the fly patterns to use in those specific areas. So. Cool. No, that's very helpful. You mentioned the book a couple of times. Can we talk a little bit about the book, kind of the Genesis and, what people could expect from it? Yeah. So um, a good friend of ours, Dave Karzinski, is an author. Um, myself and a number of our guides um, 
wrote a book called Smallmouth Modern Fly Fishing Methods, Tactics, and Techniques. And the genesis of the book was Dave had approached us about it. And he said, of any of the guys fishing smallmouth, you guys have more days, more hours, more intel than anyone in the country. Like, we need to talk about this. We should write a book. (laughs) (laughs) Made me all red in the face, like, come on, man. You know, like, um, but, uh, you know, his, his whole idea was there's been some smallmouth books that were written, but so much of the smallmouth culture is old. Um, some of my very dear friends, the late Dave Whitlock, who just passed away, I've guided Dave and Emily for, you know, 15 years, 20 years for smallmouth. You know, there's great smallmouth books that are out there, but there's so much more information now from bigger fly patterns, the finesse game, understanding fly lines, what fly lines do. I know you had one of my buddies from Scientific Anglers on, like, we got to help them develop fly lines specifically. There's been so much that has happened. And that was the genesis of the book. So the book came out and we were super pumped because it had a great response because it was brand new information. This isn't regurgitated stuff from, from, a billion times, you know, in the past. And uh, we've got such good compliments on it. Like it's in its fourth printing and it's the best selling fly fishing smallmouth book to date. So like it's doing really well still. Congratulations. That's really good. Thank you. We'll make my, sure that see, we... my mom, <laughs> my mom and dad, they were so disappointed. They're like, he wrote a book. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. No, write a book. That's a big deal. And um, I'm happy to hear it's doing so well. We'll make sure we link to that in the show notes because Great. all these deep holes that, that you're talking about, I'm sure you guys go all the way to the bottom in those things. We, we, in we, we, we don't, we don't leave a rock unturned on that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, tactically, I want to get back to, I'm trying to imagine the casting and floating down the river. Mm-hmm. You said 45 degrees off the nose. So yep. um, how far are you leading, like the pace of the boat and the CFS and things? Like how does that affect the timing, I guess, of your cast? Are you are you trying to get a lot of casts? Are you more thoughtful? Like, okay, I'm going to wait until I have a good opportunity and then cast. Is it more about repetitions or quality or both? It's, it's both, but it is repetition. Um, you know, you want to cover water, you want to cover, you want to cover, cover, you know, like logs, those drops, you know, like the stuff that we talked about earlier. Yeah. You want to keep that angle. So, but it is about repetition. It's a lot of fly casting, a lot of blind casting all throughout the day, covering targets. So that's what customers love so much about the sport. That, yeah. That's fun um, fishing. It is fun fishing because it's not just, you know, I did it for a living. I can't go down a river and just watch a bobber all day out of a drift (laughs) boat. I I just, I don't care how good the fishing is. I just don't have it in me anymore. I understand. Um, Where at least here, it's like target practice. And uh, it, it also makes trout anglers really good because one thing we didn't cover, Jason, is like some of the tackle, like, we have to fish these bass with like seven and eight weight rods. Yeah, let's get into of, some of that. That's the gear yeah. and, and the and especially the lines, if you can talk to that too. Yeah. Yep. Uh so you know, some of the smaller fish, if you're fishing smaller rivers with smaller fish that are like ten to fourteen inches, a five or six weight would do it. But most of our river fish, you know, we've caught fish over six pounds that are strong. And uh you just can't you can't ethically land them ethically quickly enough with that 
lighter tackle. So that's why like seven and eight weights are what we, we bring up on the river. They have to be that big in order to manhandle these fish a little bit. Um, the reels as a fly shop owner, I'd love to tell you that everybody needs like an $800 reel, but <laughs> you, I mentioned earlier, you don't really use that at all. So, uh, well, you did say uh, that. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, can't take that one back. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the reel itself, um, our recommendations are lighter weight reels from, um, a repetition standpoint, you know, kind of keep the, the, the package light. Okay. And, the, and then the fly lines themselves, it's its own conversation, but, um, floating lines through the summer months are about 95% what we use. Then we also will use earlier season, higher waters, some intermediate lines, some sinking lines if we need to, shorter leaders, things like that. So that's kind of um, the recipe. Leaders, bass leaders, heavier butt section taper on it um, to 10 pound. You know, we're usually fishing like 10 pound. Um, 10 that's pound kind is of our the favorite. lightest, the lightest. The yeah. Area. Okay. Yeah. 10 pound. And a lot of times I'll be honest with you, like a lot of the conventional bass leaders, for those of your listeners that are kind of like line tippet leader nerds, um, I'll use a traditional bass leader in that 10 pound. And then what I'll do is I'll take about two feet of the tippet and cut it off. And then I use eight or 10 pound chameleon maxima. The chameleon is kind of that red color, but it really is super abrasion resistant in our red rivers, it disappears, you know, like the Tannin rivers. Oh, that's cool. Um, and, yeah. and that's kind of what our, our, our guys, does it make a difference in my head? It does. So that's good enough. That's for me, part of fishing. That is, <laughs> that is part of fishing in my head. Like, it does. My, so yeah. It that's, that's it. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's yeah. good. You said that. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up and we, that we talked mm-hmm. about that. I want to ask yep. you about the dry fly fishing, you know, is it yeah. more seasonal or, um, is there ever any kind of like hatches or things that you're thinking about throughout the day? Is there just kind of like a weather pattern that presents itself in the summer season that lends itself more to these top water days or how do you make those types of decisions? That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's excellent. Um, because like our warm rivers themselves do see hatches. So we'll see like We'll see caddis, we'll see sulfurs, and then we see some of the more warm water mayflies, like um, we'll see Hendrickson's, but we'll also see brown drakes and gray drakes. Yeah, because I see bugs out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and hacks, stoneflies, things like that. The weird part about a smallmouth is, unlike a trout, like the smallmouth don't really seem to care. You know, I mean, like they're predators and they will eat that stuff. But to actually go out there and be like, okay, the sulfurs are coming off. Like, this is what it is. Like, they'll eat a popper better than they will, like, a sulfur pattern. Yeah. You know? So, one thing that I will say for certain about that is, like, we'll see the Lucons, the Efron Lucons, or the White Mayflies. Some call them White Millers, whatever. They're, they're all over the place. It's an August hatch. We will see a large amount of smallmouth that will come up and and eat some of those and some of the other hatches they will come up but we don't put that type of stock in it that we would in the trout world where it's like the olives are going to be out today it's a dismal day the trout are going to be up eating olives you know it's not the same deal but the thing is is like the top water bite still exists all the time even without that hatch that's the magic yeah that that's why i was kind of asking because yeah you don't have to think about that as much and and you know, 
So what is it then that you look for? If it's not like a hatch per se, uh, mm-hmm. what is the conditions that make you say top water dry flies today? Uh, well, what it would be is like, if I don't have super high winds, you know, where the river is completely blown out, where maybe that fish's field of vision is screwed up, you know, it's not going to be able to see it nearly as well, like in white caps, that type of thing. Um, I always like just like an even barometer whenever you have weird ups and downs, cold fronts that, that affects our fish just period. They just don't like that. That's, that's never great. Um, but every single day that I go out, um, from June, even the middle of May, all the way till September, I'm going to be fishing top water primarily. And in a lot of, in a lot of cases, um, like, both guys might go top water. That's a nice about thing about the drift boat. I can experiment. You know, I can put one guy in the front fishing a top water bug or a boogle bug. Guy in the back could be ripping a big streamer, you know, fishing, you know, big game changer or something until we develop a pattern and then what works. But the one thing that does change about like your 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 original question about that top water game is we do see a couple things that are very important. Um, you do get big caddisfly hatches and all of the other stuff. I think just just the fact that there's movement on the surface makes fish think that like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll look up. But early in the season, end of May, first part of June, we see a giant migration of, stone, of uh, dragonflies, big dragonflies. And they know that. So we'll be fishing like maybe a popper. And then below that, one of these little dragonfly nymphs below that popper. So you can pop the popper. That's an indicator. And then you got the dragonfly underneath. Sometimes they eat that. And then when they do, when they do emerge, they crawl to the shoreline, they emerge. We have these gigantic dragonflies that are, you know, four inches long, these big dragonflies, and they're available too. Once we get into July, weeds start growing to the surface. We see huge emergences of damselflies, little blue ones emerald darners, the emerald colored ones. Um, and then we get into August, we get this freak flying ant hatch that happens up there. There's only a day or two. It's the only insect on our river that makes every smallmouth come up to the surface. Okay. Every one of them. And we could talk more on this. This is a weird phenomena, but like they're puking up the Queens, but you could have Hendrickson's that thick on it, and they won't do that same thing that they will with a flying ant. But when we start seeing those dragonflies, the damselflies, the ants, those finesse type of things, that's when we're going more towards those wiggly style flies that we talked about earlier and not like an aggressive popper that makes a lot of noise. Okay. You've mentioned a bunch of flies. Uh, I am a slightly below average fly tire. Are there a couple patterns that if I was going to come fish with you, Tim, uh, I might kind of prep my trip with not too many materials, not too difficult. That is kind of a, I don't know, like a confidence fly that works most of the time of the year. I I understand it's totally depends on seasons and weather and things like that. But you know, most people have a few confidence flies. If there's some of those that are simpler to tie, would you recommend any of those? Yeah. Um, confidence flies, like the first one that all of you should tie, it's an old pattern. It was designed specifically for striped bass originally, but it's the um, the Murdich minnow. The Murdich minnow is about a four or five inch long bait fish pattern. Very simple. Estaz, Bucktail, Crystal Flash. You can get on our YouTube channel and look up the Murdich minnow and how to tie it. 
But I think you could go down any smallmouth stream and just fish a Murdich minnow, which is that intermediate level fly, and be successful enough to just love it. Um, that's one that even recreational tires could tie and have as a confidence fly. Our guys use them all the time. Some different bugger patterns, sparkle minnows, coffee sparkle minnows, um, larger bugger patterns that are easy for beginners to tie are still going to be effective. And then the top water stuff, the old Mr. Wiggly is not a hard pattern to tie. And again, we have videos on how to tie that on our site. Um, poppers, you're probably just better off buying them. Okay. I mean, that's, that's putsy work, you know? <laughs> so, All right. but I mean, those are and like, like Clouser minnows, yeah, some of that Clouser, kind of stuff is all, yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's good stuff for somebody to just kind of get their feet under them with. Uh, <laughs> if you could only fish two days of the year up there, Tim, which two days would you fish and how would you fish it? Oh, I'd, I I can't answer that. I'd fish all of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, okay, okay. You don't have to answer, days. yeah. Here, here's, it's, it's a legit question, Jason, but we get this all the time from customers at the shop that will call and they'll say, you know, when do you guide smallmouth? And we're like, we open up two weeks during pre-spawn, we shut down during the spawn, and then we roll June, July, August, mid-September. And the question that we get all the time is like, when should I come? What I'm asking you is what's your favorite time to go? Oh, man. Like I'll your, tell you, your, I like your personal, like I, I had to go two days. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to take one day in May during pre-spawn when the river hits 50 degrees. And the other day I'm going to fish end of August and try to hit that ant hatch. <laughs> okay. That sounds And like still fun. have great, and have great wiggly fishing. Now, the pre-spawn is a weird deal, and we didn't really touch on that a whole lot, but like it's a time of the year where these fish come out of kind of winter dormancy and start moving into the rivers. They're full of eggs. They're really heavy. They're super fat. They're going to be way bigger than they are at any other time of the year, and they're going to start looking for areas to spawn. This is all pre-spawn. Um, it's not the best time for people to come because the weather is tougher. You're fishing heavy stuff. But you have an opportunity at like the biggest smallmouth you'll ever touch. Oh, that's during fair. That time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I meant. Like, I just curious what, yeah. what you yep. like, and uh, that sounds like an exciting time. Both exciting times. And then that wiggly time, just being able to like be out there in summer and that type of sunlight at the end of August, which is kind of like that cresting end of the season. Like, I feel it in my bones. Like, it's it's closing. You know, my my season's almost done. Yeah. And and uh, getting to maybe sight fish to a couple of really big uh, summer-fed smallmouth. Do you have a memorable fish or a fish that you took a lesson – learned away from that sticks out in your brain maybe recently you relearned something or just something further on that is particularly uh special for you well there you know every every season there's that fish or a couple of fish that kind of sticks in your brain but the i'm, I'm going to just tell you this one because i just had this conversation with a friend just the other night we were fishing with a good friend of mine, Matt Quedek, and his uh, his wife, Sarah. And there was a grass bank. This is probably 10 years ago, and I still remember this. And we just talked about this the other night. There was this grass bank that we float down that we're typically fishing some of these wiggly patterns on finesse fishing. You have to have really good casters because it's a game of inches at that point. You know, this you can't slap stuff out there. This is unacceptable. It's, they're not going to get bit. 
and I see this fish that's just like, I don't know, 10 inches below the surface. And you rarely see them like that. Like he's just laying there. And I told Sarah, I'm like, Sarah, you know, give me a shot in front of that fish. I dropped the anchor and we fished for that fish for like, I don't know, 10 minutes, changed flies. This isn't what you should do with a smallmouth. Like you should have <laughs> caught this fish. Yeah, yeah. We covered this. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally I told her, I'm like, all right, I'm going to pull the anchor and fish this wiggly, throw it over the top of the fish to the other side of the fish. And she does this and the fish just comes up like it was waiting for it all day and eats it. And what it was, the fish was completely blind in its right eye. It had, it was an old fish and the eye was not rotted out of it, but it was like scarred over. Oh, that's cool. The, fi- <laughs> the fish never saw the bug. That is like, cool. It never saw the bug until like, it was just a left-handed feeder. <laughs> <laughs> that's a cool story. I was not expecting that, but that is cool. So, but it was funny. And I'm just like, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. It's blind and guess what side. Yeah. All right. I'm going to start moving on, Tim, but uh, before I do, is there anything about smallmouth or your fishery that you want to bring up that we haven't talked about uh, that you think people would find, I don't know, interesting or a tactic that is something that is very useful or technique that, you know, you want to pass along? I I think something I just want to pass along that's got nothing to do with any of those things is that those people that are fly anglers that live in an area with smallmouth bass that you're not going out and actively pursuing are just missing a very fulfilling part of their sport. Very fulfilling. Smallmouth bass are one of those things. If if I look at the state of Wisconsin right now, for all of your listeners who are thinking about smallmouth bass, the state of Wisconsin, if we break down trout streams, I can honestly tell you, like, I have only a handful of secret spots left. I do this for a living. There's only a handful of secret spots left. I might not have any secret spots left. And the thing about smallmouth bass is it is so limitly pursued. That's not a word, but it's so pursued so in such a small segment. Every single river in the state of Wisconsin or maybe where you live that you have warm water rivers, that it's too warm for trout, I would guarantee has this incredible population of wild smallmouth and nobody's fishing it. So the places that I don't have any secret spots anymore, there are literally hundreds of secret smallmouth spots still. Like like you're in the now for it and yeah. it's not going to be the now forever. So like jump on it, pursue it now. All right. Get in there. The getting's good. That's that sounds, it. That sounds good. I want to change direction a little bit. I want to ask you about uh, something that happened May 26, 2023. And does that date ring any bells in your brain? I'm going to give you a hint. It has to do with your one of your children. May 26th. May 26th. Oh man, was that my daughter that was my daughter's senior or was her senior skip day? That was a senior skip day. Yes. So, I thought that that was super I thought that was cool for two reasons, and I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. First is Senior skip when you're a teenager and you're a senior and you're going to college next year and you know the approval of your parents is no longer the it's not it's no longer what we're looking for right we're trying to fit in with our peer group and make friends and figure out who we are and stuff um, and so I'm just imagining this 18 year old girl 
who on her senior skip day is like, I want to go fishing with dad. So I'm going to let you, I mean, that, to me, to me that's, <laughs> you're killing me. Like, I just want to openly weep right now, bro. <laughs> I mean, that's special, man. That's very special. And then the second thing that's cool about that is she crushed it out there. I mean, she's catching she, fish. She crushed it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I want to bring that up. Can you just kind of talk about that, how you discovered that that was going to happen? Did she surprise you? And then I guess, what does that mean to you and how do you, how do you get there? If you have any advice, because, um, part of that's a parenting thing, so it doesn't have a lot to do with fishing. So I'm sure that there's that side of it too, but just any, any kind of words that you can pass along on that story, man, this is, this is, pow- this is powerful, Jason. Cause like, so to, to, to start back on your original story about like the senior skip day and then how we got there. So for your listeners, this was probably one of my Instagram posts, but my daughter had asked me, I just got done guiding all of the pre-spawn. So I'm wiped out, you know, I've, I've been been grinding it. And she told me, she said, it's our senior skip day. Dad, will you take me fishing? Like, <laughs> yes. The answer, no matter how tired or anything, is like when your 18-year-old daughter asks you to take senior skip day, go fishing. So I'm like, yeah, absolutely, Avery. And uh, she and I drove up to the river together, went and got Starbucks and like just made a day of it. I put the motor on. We weren't going to do a big, huge day, but she shows up and she gets out of the truck and she's got her cap for graduation on and her honors ribbons. And she proceeded to fish all day in her cap and honors <laughs> ribbon and she roped them. Yeah. And like every dad is proud, but I, I can tell you like, boy, both of my kids are great anglers, like exceptional anglers. And, um, it was, it was truly one of the best days ever. So to, to rewind a little bit, like, how did I get to that minute in my life of like that second? Well, yeah, I asked because so many people, it's such a special thing. And, um, you know, I would, I would, any, any father would, would be super excited and happy for that moment. Right. Because it just shows like, I'm going to take this day and I'm going to I'm going to use it in a way that it's just not predictable, right? It's not, it's not standard. It's not normal. It's yeah. I'm, I'm not saying abnormal, but it's just like, wow. Okay. You don't want to hang with your yeah. friends on senior skip day. You know, all right. That's, that's pretty cool. It was, it was, it was the best. But maybe it's because you raised like a, a crazy, crazy angler who just loves to fish all the time. You, you know <laughs> what? Maybe it's, it's not uh, as... <laughs> it's, it's, no, she loves to fish. All of my kids, both of my kids. I have a son. My son is bear. Loves to fish. My wife loves to fish. Avery loves to fish, but doesn't live to fish. She is my relaxed angler where she will grab, we have a cabin in Southwest Wisconsin. She will grab a fly rod with whatever fly is on it. We will go angling and she will catch a fish, put the hook back on and be like, that was great. You know, so she's not fanatical. She loves it, but she's not like, I, I don't know you all that well, Jason, but I, you and I are fanatical. <laughs> this is our jam, you know, like this is what we love. Um, but she wanted to to spend those minutes with me, which was like the biggest part of all of that. And um, that was, it was just truly one of the best things ever. But if we rewind, um, I learned an awful lot from customers about teaching kids in the outdoors, fishing, whether it was hunting, fishing, you know, food crafting, any of that kind of thing. I remember one of my customers came in to the shop a long time ago. My kids weren't even born yet. And 
the customer was talking about how he took his kid fishing and the kid wanted to be done after a half an hour and they stayed for like another five or six hours. And he's like, he's going to love it. You know, he's going to just like it. And how disappointed he was that his kid wanted to go home the whole time. Well, what I took from that and what your listeners should take from it, and I'm not, I'm not a professional on this, but it worked for me was like when they're done, dads, when they're done, they're done. That means you go get a cup of hot cocoa or a cup of tea or you get a snack or you do something and you keep them engaged. Um, that's how we did it. I went kid gloves and baby steps. When I taught him to cast, we'd set mouse traps, traps up in the backyard and cast little crazy Charlies and try to oh, set mouse cool. traps up I've never and heard make that. it a game. Mouse traps, that's really Yeah, cool. make it a game or try to, you know, put a hook on, put glasses on them and try to hit them balloons and pop balloons. You know, make it a game for them. Um, take them bluegill fishing. Don't take them trout fishing. You know, trout fishing's hard. Uh, it was things like that that I learned and all of a sudden they just began to love it. And it just happened on its own because I didn't force it. And I remember we had one instance getting back to my daughter on one thing, you know, take that time with them. And if they want to go, you just go. If they want to do it, you do it. My daughter, she's, she's always been, she's 19. She's always been an old lady in her head. Like she's been a, she, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. She's a very old soul. But when she was in, when she was in fourth grade, or maybe it was like fifth grade, like fourth or fifth grade. She had this elaborate plan every day I would take her to school. And she had this elaborate plan that she had written out of like, take me to school, um, drive away slowly, call the school saying we had a family emergency, go to, go to the coffee shop, get this, drive to the cabin, which is four hours away, catch one trout, have dinner and lunch together, drive home. And then she made a map and she... She, we were joking about this for like a whole year. And one day I told Sarah, I'm like, I'm going to do it. So that morning we pulled up to school and we were joking about it. And I told her, I'm like, okay, lay down, like get down, you know? And she got down and we followed her plan that day, skipped school, called school, a family emergency. She still talks about that, you know? And it was like, it was the most epic day ever. And uh, didn't cost me a nickel. And it's one of the best memories. And now, you know, my kids are some of my best friends. Yeah. Not everything we learn needs to be learned in school, right? So. No, no. That's a great story. And I appreciate you. you sharing that. And um, I don't know, Matt, just uh, congratulations to you. Because I think that that is a W in any parent's book. So. Uh, it's been great. My son Bears worked in the fly shop now. Yeah, and cool. It's just, it's just fun. So. All right. Uh, Tim. Before I ask you my last question is how can people find out more about you? How can they visit the fly shop and schedule a guided trip? And can you talk a little bit about anything else that you might be excited about coming up? Yeah. Um, if those who want to find us or track us down, you can go to www.tightlinesflyshop.com. And that's going to run you directly to our website. Talks a little bit about us. There's a full online store with a lot of the fly patterns that you and I had talked about too, Jason. You can also find us on, you know, social media here. Um, uh, on social media, the shop itself has a Facebook page. And I believe I'm looking right now, I believe the Facebook page is, um, it is just, 
I think it's Tight Lines Fly Fishing Co. Yes. Tight Lines Fly Fishing Co. is the Facebook page. And then we also have an Instagram page that is Tight Lines Fly Fishing Co. also. But you can kind of check into like what we have going on all the time. We do more updates on that type of thing. Um, so, and especially when we have events, like we have a big tying event coming up in a couple of weeks called Taiwan on. We work actively with Trout Unlimited, basically drink some beers at a local brewery. You got your flies. own beers. We got our own beer. Yes. Yes, we do. Five I minutes on it, that or how did that work? I mean, I've got, a, I've got, I do, I do have a couple other questions that are a yeah. little, little yeah. less fishy, but I wanted to ask you yeah. about the beer first and then I got another one real quick. Okay. Well, the beer was like, like I'm, I'm super grateful that I wrote a book, but I'm like, I got a beer. That's even cooler. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, some of my really good friends own a really cool brewery called Gnarly Cedar Brewery in Ledgestone Vineyards. And uh, we've been working, uh, there's this mine that's going, that they keep pushing towards on the Menominee River, and we keep fighting against this sulfide gold mine. And Adam is from that area, and he's like, hey, let's do a collaboration beer. Uh, with tight lines and proceeds of this go to helping fight this fight. Well, Adam was unaware at what professional beer drinkers, fly anglers are because it did really well. So that's kind of how, how it all went down. So it was, it was a real fun project that we did. Did you mention the brewery? I'm sorry if I missed that or who uh, brewed the beer for you guys. The brewery is called Ledgestone uh, Vineyards. It's a, it's a winery, but they also have, a full brewery that's called Gnarly Cedar Brewery and uh, just incredible beers. He did a bunch of cool samplings for us, like what do you want in it? And um, yeah, they've sold a lot of tight lines, Midwest Coast IPA. Okay. Well, maybe we'll link to that too so people can check it out and help support the the cause out there as well. Um, I did have one other question before I ask you my last question. You mentioned hunting, fishing, food crafting, yeah. Can you talk about the whitetail flip-flop on the brew on the Brule stove? Brule oh my stove? gosh. Cuz cuz I I love to hunt and I love venison and I grew up with it and when I saw what you guys are doing there I'm like what is, what is this and how do I do this because Okay. I mean it looked like you were making I make a brisket. I mean it was just so moist and stuff. I mean it just looked delicious and that is I, I do not overcook venison, but you look like you got something special going on. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like I do a lot of food crafting, like we make a lot of, make my own sausages. I shoot a lot of whitetails. Fall is a big time for me. Yeah, I'm a big archery it. hunter. That's that's my jam. And uh, one of my best friends, his name's Kyle Zempel. He owns Black Earth Angling Company. He's a really foodie guy also, like especially in the wild game component. Well, we have this special stove. It was called a Brule stove. The banks of the Brule River, it's basically just an open pit stove with fire brick in it. But, you know, the idea is you put about 10 or 15 logs into that and you get hot coals. So that's kind of where that started, Jason, get a bunch of hot coals. And then what Kyle had brought that night was a yearling whitetail hindquarter, you know, a, a full-size whitetail, and I know it's tough taking a yearling, but, like, I'm taking one or two yearlings every year specifically for this. But the whole hind quarter. <laughs> Tender as young mice. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So, basically, what he does is he has this whole hind quarter that you pat dry. You get this grate on the stove hot, and he makes a mop. He had a mop of, of you know, like, cooking twine and rosemary. 
And then he has a, a, a delicious glaze. I'm not sure exactly what this can be a myriad of different stuff, but maybe a half a gallon of this delicious glaze. And you basically just baste the entire hind quarter and you put it on the stove, yeah. on that Brule stove hot. Then you have a carving board and a knife right there. And as soon as it gets a crust on that side, you take it off and you cut right down to where it's really rare. Yeah. And you get like slices. You baste it back up. You flip it onto the other side. Uh, and you, okay. you continually do that until you end up with a bone. So the coolest part of a meal like that is number one, it's incredible, you know, delicious meat. Um, is the social aspect of it because we sit out there, we sat out there for two hours by the brule stove and hanging out, talking about hunting and fishing stories and just eating meat until you were, you know, going to explode. <laughs> so that's the flip flop. Uh, it's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It's kind of like a Turkish kebab place or something with a. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Can you tell me any more about the what's in the mop? The is it oil like a olive oil based thing or? Yeah, you know? I think he. I, this was his own little secret recipe, but it could okay. be a million different things. But it was olive oil based, you know, primarily. But like he had all sorts of herbs and spices, and I'm not sure what it is. It almost looked like there was like a mustard, but there was like cumin in there and a whole bunch of really. It was it was just spectacular. But I think you could do a host of stuff with that, but. Just don't overcook it. You know, you just oh, cut yeah. you off can't that overcook. slice. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Okay. You can't. Um, well, good. I'm glad we got to talk a little food yeah. crafting as well. Yeah. I'm not, I, I do like to, to cook uh, as well. I don't know if I'm a food crafter, but uh, maybe a little well, I've bit. Got, I've got like <laughs> 90, 90 quarts of venison bone broth in my basement. Oh, it's it's become a problem. This it's is, a problem. Yeah. Sounds like uh, my childhood. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tim. Last question. Really last question. You ready? Sure. Shoot. If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more tactical and one more philosophical, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? Man, that's tough. You know, I think... Philosophically, like I have an easier time with that Tac tactics and stuff. Like it's like, man, I just I've gone there, done all sorts of different stuff, fished all over the world and stuff. And I think tactically, like the number one thing is tactically, I would tell myself and everybody's like, get your casting to the absolute best level that you possibly can. Like I think, I think if I were to go back and concentrate instead of being like an an you know like bug obsessed and understanding all the Latin names of the bugs, like become a far better fly caster than that. Uh, priority number one, the better fly casters are going to win the game, period. Like when I think about it, you know, in my head, what I would tell myself was um, the catching of the fish. And now I know that the catching of, of, of the fish and like my passion was so driven towards like, fish from sun up till sundown and feeling that I'm like failing if I'm not putting in all the hours every single day into fishing and like, like, like just living, breathing, like I, I need to catch one more. I need to catch one more. Like I wish I would have just told myself to just chill out and enjoy the sport more. I, I enjoyed that part of it, but I'm, I'm at a different place now. I'm still as passionate as I've ever been but I enjoy the sport so much more because like 
I can get just as much enjoyment of going down and not putting waders on, but going and catching three trout out of a pool the way I want to do it, you know, and uh, not feeling that guilt that I'm not as hardcore enough, you know, like put all that crap behind you. You don't need, I mean, just fish because you love to fish. So I think, I think those are the two things I'd, I'd tell myself, my younger self. Those are good things. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for sharing all your information and stories today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I love talking tactics. It's one of my favorite things about fly fishing is just the tactical portion of it. So I appreciate you diving deep as in your words into a lot of those tactics and, uh, and techniques and things like that. Cause that's just really special part of sport for me. So I appreciate that personally. And thanks for being on the show. Absolutely, Jason. It's, it's, been a, it's been a ton of fun. I appreciate the opportunity, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, wait out there.